0: In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross-cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how To be the best you that you can be. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. Today's guest is Maymar Carmo. Now, Maymar is the founder and CEO of Tiger Lily Foundation and a 10 year survivor of breast cancer. Now, on, on February 2008, yeah, of, no. February two thousand six at four forty-five p.m., she uh, was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer, and she had no family history of breast cancer. And you know, you can imagine being thirty-two and undergoing chemo. She had several thoughts going through her head, but she made a promise to God that if she survived, she would create an organization to educate, empower, and advocate and support young women affected by breast cancer. And since then, you know, after surviving that. She's gone on to build quite the career for herself. She's now a life coach. She's <clears throat> the founder and creator of uh, the Living Bliss brand. She's the host of a Pure Bliss podcast, the, the Bliss brand. She's been on the Oprah show twice, the Today show twice. Good morning, America. MSNBC, Cosmo O, Glamour Essence. You get the point. She's been everywhere and sharing a message. So it's it's a tremendous honor to have you on the show, Mema.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate opportunity to be on the show and to share my story with your listeners.
0: Well, the pleasure's mine. <laughs> but why don't why don't we start off there? What is your story?
1: Uh, my story is just you know it's it's pretty interesting because you know when it's your life you just live it and then you look back and you kind of think like what the heck happened? You know. <laughs> so I'm from Liberia, West Africa. Um, I was born and raised there till I was 15 years old. Um, my parents are. My dad's a commodities trader. My mom's a nurse, and we had a pretty good life. As you may know, you know Liberia has been, um, you know, the life there has been marred by war. Not one, or just twice, but three times. I've we survived. We've had major conflict, and it continued after my parents sent me here as you know, alone at 15 years old. And so I've been through. I came to the, like to the states as a refugee at 15. My dad put me on a plane alone because the war had broken out and it was happening so fast. And um, as you know, in times of war, people start to, you know, pillage and rape. And young girls are often targets for attack doing those things in women. So my teenage years began with me being thrust on a plane alone. And that's how I came to America. And my dad told me that just to pray when I got here to give him a call. And that's how my life in the States began. Um Before that war happened, though uh there were two other wars, like I mentioned, and you know being a child that's raised among amongst conflict where there's people walking around next to you with m sixteen and Uzis and there's tanks and soldiers and fatigues, you know people might hear me talking about it and think what a terrible life and it was scary, but there's a fortitude in um a fortitude a prayerfulness a faith and trust in the in the process and in God that you get when that's your way of living. Um, and so that's how I grew up and when we came to live in the States, I, my parents, my, my dad came eventually with my brothers and you know, imagine having a nice home and a nice life and then going to um, you know, losing everything and having to have 10 people living in an apartment that's probably under 600 feet, square feet, you know, small and My bed became the couch, that's where I slept for many, many years. And we had to learn to make ends meet. I had to get a job at 15, 16 years old, and eventually, you know, two other jobs to help my parents make, you know, pay the bills. Um, I planned to go to college right away, but my college tuition, all of that was lost, you know, during the war. So um, I had to put off school for a while, but, you know, I always saw it as being an adventure. I never saw it as being something that was bad. I think once you have your life and you have your breath and your heart's beating, there is hope, and that's kind of how I've always seen life.
0: That's 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 incredible, and I I think your story of of having you know gone through what you did and also having had so much early, but experienced loss early as well, it, it it's fascinating. And and you know, I shared with you, I'm also a fellow West West uh, West African, and I don't say this a lot, but I, I I've actually. You know, I lived through two dictatorships, two military dictatorships. A lot of my childhood was, was spent, you know, with, uh, you know, General Sani Abacha, um, and sometime with, the uh, Babangida. And, and we had, you know, interesting sanctions. Sometimes liberties weren't given to us because it, it depends on, you know, who you know and, and who's with you. But just to hear you say, you know, you having that, that, that fortitude to know that, <coughs> there was still more. I think that's inspirational, especially in in a time like today when, or when some people are looking for hope and they and their first instinct is to give up. Um, so that's inspirational. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. I remember,
1: you know, being held at gunpoint at 12. You were held at gunpoint at 12. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, during those wars, they have curfews. Yeah. Yeah. You want to go out. And my parents were very strict with my brothers and I, Um, one my one brother we wanted to go out to a party and they were like my parents were like No you can't go to any party past a certain time because of the curfew. And so we you know Liberia, Africa, you just give the driver some money and say, here's money for your beer or whatever. Here's five dollars, ten dollars, they'll sell you their you know their their firstborn. So I give whatever. So they we gave him some money and said my parents had said to the driver, take him to the party and bring him back home by this time. And he was like, Sure. So we got in the car and then Um, We paid him to just take the night off and let us have the car, and we went to the party. This party, and I think we just lost track of time, having fun. And when we realized it, we had missed our curfew. The curfew meaning the martial law, like the time, because they had the government had enforced a time to you have to be in your house or not be on the roads. So we got on the roads, and and you know we we driving, and then all of a sudden there is a row of soldiers and with guns, and they stopped. And it's not like, you know, the streets are lit. These people understand rationale, you know. They literally were out for a raping and blood. And so and my brother and I, you know, got out of the car. They made us get out, and they were going to have their way with me. And the thing that blessed me is that my father was a very generous person. So my dad, I mentioned, was a Miley's trader, and he used to import and export products. And one thing he did was give people rice. He had a rice company. So he gave people rice all the time who were poor. And so a lot of soldiers knew him because they were poor people, you know, they were poor men. And so people know him for him being the guy who gave rice for free on the weekends. And so when the soldiers were about to you know, take us inside the building to do whatever with us, somebody said, whose car is that? I know that person's car. And then the guy came out and said, oh, that, that car is, belongs to my boss man and he, he's a good man and don't hurt those kids. And that's how we got out of that scrape. So one of the things I'll, I want to share with you guys, is your listeners, is this, the importance of charity and giving, not just as in philanthropy, but just being kind, because my father's kindness and my mother's kindness has saved my life so many times. And so, to me, it was by accident. I got into my work, but it really wasn't by accident. It really was my, fa- my, family meant my family's um, way of living, which is giving back. And for me, uh, there's a quote that I read by Miriam Rice Edelman, and it says, Service is the rent we pay for a living, and so I just made it my mission to give back through my the way I live every day.
0: Wow! Well, wow. I love it. I love it. I love it. So take me take me to the time when your dad sent you off to America by yourself. What what was going through your mind?
1: Well, it, it's so interesting because that was such a really a, a traumatic time for me that I I literally almost forgot what happened. I remember I remember um, getting him telling me to pack my bags. And I began to pack, you know, I love to read. So I packed the Diary of Anne Frank. I packed all these books. And my dad was like, no, you need to unpack the books and pack clothes and shoes and essentials. And so I was like, why? I need my books. And then when I, probably I packed, he, said, he was like, no books. Just, you know, pack your, you know, things you need. And um, I packed my music box and, you know, little girl things, trinkets. And I packed my bag and I said, where are we going? And he said, um, you have to go on a trip. And I said, well, where, where's your bag? And he said, don't ask me about that. He just kind of got me in the car and we got to get to drive. And as we drove along, you know, he told me to keep down in the car and don't talk. Because, you know, when those people see, when, they, when the soldiers see, you know, a girl in a car, a young girl who's pretty, you could attract the wrong kind of attention. And um, we went through several, several check, you know, checkpoints where there were people who were drunk and high and, tie and and somehow we got to the checkpoints and then we got to the plane, to the airport. And my, I realized my dad didn't have a bag, and so I began to argue with him, like, where, where am I going? Why aren't you coming? Where are the boys? And, you know, I began to panic because, you know, I've, I've seen what happened in other wars. I've had people whose friends and family didn't survive, and um, I just began panicking. And then, a part of me just it was too much to bear. My dad started to push me to get on the plane, and. People on the plane kind of get me in there, and I'm crying. And, and then I just remember getting uh, off the plane at JFK Airport in New York. I, don't, I didn't remember the entire um, plane ride. I, it totally is, to, to this day, is still a blackout for me. Um, when, and then when, um, when I was writing, writing my book, Fearless, my book editor was asking me, I wrote about coming here, just like you asked me. I told her the story, and she said, well, what happened on the plane? what do you remember about that time? And I had to call people that I thought I was on the plane. My dad told me he had friends on the plane with me, That people that knew me. I had to call people and ask them because I was in such shock that I don't recall sitting on the plane. I don't recall eating on the plane. I don't recall who I talked to. And, and that was a long plane ride, at least 15 hours. Wow. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I've been working on honestly in my life is really going back to that time to kind of relive and remember to, because when you're a refugee, there's things that are just, you just deal with them because you're, it's part of your life. You're a survivor. You're a warrior. Um, but those things could be traumatic. And, um, you know, up until um, last spring, I never slept in my own bed. I just never slept in the bed. I couldn't, didn't feel comfortable in my bed because um, I didn't feel safe. And I felt safety on on my couch and I actually got a coach and during one of our sessions she's like why don't you sleep in your bed and we began to work on that I thought it's not a big deal I just don't like being in the bed but when she dug deeper and deeper with me it was because that when I came here and we slept I slept on a couch for probably four to five years and that was my safety I felt protected and safe and you know post-war so that was interesting that I didn't really remember that and I'm forty-two years old. You know, that's a twenty-seven year trauma that i never dealt with. Um, so I think it's important to talk about things and tell stories and, and um, you know, get support in that aspect. And and so anyway, so my parents my mom my mom was here, but my dad, and my brothers came at some point and um uh and then we lived together in the apartment and it was really it was it, it was something that was kind of just shocking because you, we thought, okay, we're going to stay here for a little bit. Like the last war, we, the last couple of wars, we'd come to America. We stayed for a while. It was more of a vacation for us, and we would go back home when the war was over. But this war was stretching out, and there seemed to be no end. And so we were like, well, we love America, but we want to go back home. And at some point, our parents, they would look at us when we said, we want to go back home, and when is it going to be over they looked at us one day and said we're we're not going back home. There's no home to go to. Huh. Uh, our house had been ransacked. Um people had stolen my mother's all of our stuff, jewelry, you know, China, wedding gown. I mean, they looted, you know, pillage and so you know, real thinking just imagining all the things that you love. Imagine your home and all that you have you know, your pictures of your childhood, you know, pictures of you as a baby. Things that you just made, that made up your life, and all gone overnight. And so we had to reconcile that. And um, my parents said, you know, as hard as this is, we need to remember that we have our lives. We have each other. And so therefore, we have to have hope in the future. And they always told us that, you know, no matter how bad things are, we were together and we're alive. And, and, And then they also made us get involved in the church. And they made us volunteer. So imagine us being refugees, ten in an apartment, (laughs) Um, probably any money, and they make me volunteer.
0: (laughs) Man, that's that's crazy. Wow. But
1: that's something that you know it, it really forged my personality because they were saying to us, "You have something to give. You always have something to give, no matter how bad things are. If you have your life and your breath, you have to give back." And so they were still pushing those values into me even during our time of having literally nothing. And I think it's important that people remember that, especially in America, people have so much, so much bounty, so much stuff, so much privilege and liberty and freedoms, and they take it for granted because they, they're born into it. As you know, as well as I do, that in our countries, our native countries, the the freedom that you may think you have isn't isn't always free, and you don't always get to be free, even if you're living in a quote unquote free country. It's still dictatorship. You may you can't speak out against you know what against, you know about what you don't believe in. You can't um exercise your your rights, and so I, I love that I can live in this country and be able to express myself and to to dream and hope and to create a life for my daughter that i I didn't have back home no
0: that's that, <laughs> i mean I can listen to you talk all day i, I can see why you you're an author you, you have such a you know good storytelling ability um and <laughs> so now now that you're in america you you sort of Realize that this is the new home and then you've taken on this role of almost where you're almost a caretaker. You're you're doing a lot of things. You have to grow up quickly. You have to get a job. Um, You know, you're a teenager. College is like not what you initially thought it was going to be. How do we how do we get to the moment where um, you get up to realizing that you uh, you had breast cancer? Walk me through that
1: time. So uh, I'll, I'll, I tell stories, as you know. I love telling. Yeah, stories. I can tell. <laughs> You're if good at
0: you know, it. <laughs> if you ask me, how's your day? I'm going to tell you like a five minute
1: minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, okay, okay. So that is, uh, but I'm just
0: 15 to 30, is it 34? You got the cancer. 32. 32. 32. So <laughs> it's just fascinating for me because with you, there's okay. so many, there's so many ways this interview can go, right? You've got so much. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the Oprah story, and everybody knows Oprah. Is my mom, right? So she's her, it's my mom and then there's <laughs> Oprah. So I, I'm very curious about that. But I think this is so important for people listening just to understand the actual, you know, how to get the bliss, which is what you do. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm more than okay waiting on the Oprah story for you to share this particular journey because you've had several ups and downs.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I really – it goes back to the story where I talked about talking to God and having him telling me he had a plan for me. Mm-hmm. My mom, I told you, is a nurse, and so she taught me at 13 years old to do my breast examination. Now, people think of Africa as being you know, a you know, rudimentary place and people aren't educated. That's not true. Um, my mom worked for the UN, and she was the head nurse of the Liberian Nurse Association. So She was really into healthcare and prevention and wellness, and she told me that one day she called me and said, sit on the bed, take off your shirt. I want to explain to you the importance of knowing your body. And knowing and doing your breast exams, and I was like, well, I don't have, I barely have any breasts, you know, I was 13, and she said that someday, someday they're gonna grow, and as they grow, I want you to know that you will experience changes in your breasts. You may have sometimes when it's denser, there may be a lump sometimes, and some lumps are not, you know, a problem, and some lumps are, you know, bad lumps. And she didn't really mention the word cancer. She just told me to be aware of the changes. And because as your body grows, it it's gonna gonna have more breast tissue and Sometimes people don't people don't understand how to do exams and they miss certain things. So um, she but she kind of explained to me in a way where it was more about being empowered and knowing myself, less about cancer, more as it's in being you know empowered. And that's kind of what I did. I did my monthly exams um, beginning at thirteen, and I never thought I would ever get cancer. It never occurred to me. Nobody in my family had breast cancer or any cancer that I was aware of. And nobody, I, my, we didn't have any history of, of anything. So um, I had the, you know, I misunderstood. I just thought I, it would never happen to me. So um, at 31 years old, I was taking a shower and doing my exams, and I felt a lump in my breast. And my mother, right away her words came into my head because when we were doing the first exam at 13, I asked her, Mommy, if something is wrong with me, how will I know? And she her, her answer was, you'll know. And, you know, what she was saying to me is if if taking care of your body and knowing your body is a habit, when something changes, you'll know that it's not normal. And so her words went through my head. And I remember my, my hands got cold. I just got this feeling of like, oh, my God. Call I call my mother up and she said, you know, call your OBGYN. I went and saw her. And she was like, you know, mama, you need to just go get, see a surgeon and get this checked out and get a mammogram. So I went and got a mammogram and went to the surgeon, and I was told that the, the mammogram had come back clean, which means that there's no evidence of, there's no evidence of cancer. Um, but my mother had impressed upon me at a young age the importance of knowing my own body. So the doctor was saying to me that I didn't have cancer. She was saying that I was too young to have breast cancer. Mm. The, the mammogram results said it's only a cyst, but I knew something was wrong with me. And so I kept pushing her for additional screening. I asked her for what's called an aspiration, um, and the lump wasn't aspirating, and so I began asking for a biopsy, which is what they take tissue out to sample it. And she was against doing the biopsy. And I told her, I'm going to keep harassing you until you give me the biopsy. And I kept bugging her and bugging her, and finally I, I got the biopsy, and the next day the doctor kept pushing me again. She's saying, you're fine, you're wasting time. You know, you should go back to living your life. Nothing's wrong with you. Come back in six months to a year. And I didn't feel comfortable ignoring my body and how I felt. And so I finally got the biopsy and the next day, she called me at work to tell me that I had stage 2B aggressive you know, breast cancer. Wow. Um, well, I have breast cancer. I found out later through the past reports that it was 2B and aggressive. And so the lump actually, when I got diagnosed, um, had doubled in size. So, if I'd taken my doctor's advice, I would be dead today. So, um, when she told me, my whole world turned upside down. Wow. I, be- I just felt a shiver. And I was I almost, I, I, my whole world, like the floor came up to meet me. It's just, it was, I was kind of like in an upside down moment. And to me, cancer meant. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? My daughter was three years old and I just thought, I'm gonna I'm going to die. This is how can this be happening to me? And because I wasn't prepared for anything like that, I mean, I can deal with a soldier and guns. I can talk my way out of a you know, being held at gunpoint. I can run from, you know, the war, but how do you escape when the war is inside your body? What do you do when you don't know how they these, you know, cells got in there? You know, I thought I'm eating healthy, I'm exercising, I'm doing the right things. What did I miss that caused this to happen? Did I not do or what did I do too much of? And so I had to really figure out again at 32 years old, like, what, how do imagine that you're sitting down, you're healthy and you're fine one minute, and the next minute you are told you have cancer, you had to figure out, you know, get a surgeon, oncologist, radiologist, and I didn't know what those things were. I didn't understand that cancer world. And um, how do I tell my child who's three that I have cancer and that I don't know what's going to happen? But Long story short, I began the process and I fell into a deep depression. I always carried God's voice in my head, in my heart, and I felt like he had abandoned me, that he lied to me, that if he was always with me, how could he bring me this far and and allow me to get cancer? And so I became very angry, very depressed, and I'm the kind of person, I'm 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 a warrior, so I can put a good face on, but inside I was dying emotionally, I was just overwhelmed with what was happening to me. And so I just stopped talking to God. And I'd am i always talk to him, but I just stopped. I was like, I'm done. And I began my treatment, and I was consumed by anger and and fear and um, despair. I'd given up. You know, my daughter has been such a blessing to me. She would come to me at the most serendipitous times and ask me, are you going to survive? Are you going to live? It was kind of like she was asking me, are you going to wake up and live, you know? Because I had my spirit was just I was devastated. And then one day I found myself in the in the shower in a fetal position just crying. I had lost my hair. I was bald and you know, no eyebrows, no eyelashes. And I had some scars from my surgery, and I just felt like a shell of a woman. And I was crying and I was just all the tears of you know, from the war in in, Africa, in Liberia, losing everything there. All my fighters, my fighter spirit, you know, was broken. I just, all the pain I had, just kind of warrior through, just kind of came out, and the pain of me thinking I've gone through all these things and worked so hard and survived all, you know, lightning and, and people dying, and you know, and all these, you know, being a single mom, all of that to sit here and die from cancer, like, why? What's the purpose? And I looked in the mirror after the shower, and I just thought. My mom came in the bathroom and took me out of the shower, actually. <coughs> and then she said, look in the mirror. And she said, look at your eyes. Look at that. You know, you can't let this thing defeat you. You have to make up your mind to live. And I was in this very, very cocoon-type space where, you know, when you're in a cocoon, you're kind of being formed. And God was shaping me. Yeah. Um. I didn't know it at the time. He was kind of breaking me apart to put me together again. Um. And so... That night, I went to bed and I just told God, like I pretty much cursed him out. You <laughs> know, like I can't tell you the words I I used, but let's just say more Explicitly right? explicit lyrics, explicit words. But I said, you know, I th- I kind of threatened him and I said, listen, if you're God, you're gonna make this, you're gonna make this work, you're gonna put me together again emotionally. I can't ask you to save my life because people die that shouldn't die. You know, babies die, people die in plane crashes or in their sleep or whatever. So I can't tell you. I want you to. Save my life, but I just wanted to ask you that if you are God, if you exist, I want you to restore my spirit by tomorrow morning. If you don't, I will never believe in you again. And, yep, I'm like, we're done. And, um, I mean, I have nothing to lose at the time. I just thought, you know, I'm gonna die or I'm gonna survive this cancer thing and I'm gonna be, you know, just have the worst life. I was just, my spirit was just so in a bad place. And, um, and the next, day I went to bed thinking, you know, I mean, I don't, I didn't think God really would answer me. I went to bed that night, and in the morning I woke up and I felt like a different person. I felt like, I mean, you know, when you sh- when you, when it's really hot and you shower and it, the water is cool mm-hmm. and it hits your skin, I just felt like refreshed and different and filled with this amazing energy and light and like tingly feelings. And I was like, oh my God, like God really did. He does. He does work miracles, and that's kind of how Tiger Lily started. Because I was sitting there thinking, look, "The promise was, if you if you restore my spirit, I'll give my life to you in service." That was my promise to God. So he'd done his part, and so I thought, "Well, what am I supposed to do now?" I don't. I didn't really expect him to, to you know, show up. <laughs> so, and so I kind of was just amazed at what happened. I was overwhelmed, and my life was changed, kind of like if you read the Bible, kind of like how Saul became Paul on the road to Damascus, like I just was a different person. And so I began asking God, you know, I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. What can I do to give back? And the, the answer came to me and the word I heard in my head was tiger lily, you know, and I was like, well, what, what is that? And, you know, I began to just ask God questions and he began to guide me every moment of my, of those every moment. And he would tell me what to do. And the, The resounding, you know, message was to use my use my experience to help other people. Um, I didn't know what that would look like. I'd never done advocacy before. I'd never run a business before. I've never had a board or or fundraised or build a website. I mean, I didn't know anything about any of that world. It was totally foreign to me. I used to be um, a government contractor. I go to my desk and I work and go home. So I didn't know what he meant by this thing, but the beauty in, in the beauty in the thing when you have a relationship with God is that you don't have to have the answers, because you have this amazing, universal, beautiful, powerful energy giving you the answers as you as you're walking in, in faith. And so, Tiger Lily came about as a blog to share my story, and then my my the energy inside of me that was God telling me what to do got me. People will call me and say, "I saw your blog. Can you come to my church? And can you come to this health fair? And can you do this for me?" And then, as that grew, people were coming to me and saying, "My sister has breast cancer. She's 25. My cousin has it. She's 32." And then people who needed the services they were coming because I was thinking it was just me. I didn't know anybody my age going through this. And so as I began to share my story, others who needed that support came to me. And I thought, "Well, I'm not a leader. I'm not a speaker. I'm not a visionary. I'm not." A comforter. I don't know what to do, but then God would give me the right words to say and tell me where to go. And so I became evident at some point that this was bigger than me, and that it wasn't just only my story. But God wanted me to be a living witness for His for His glory, for His work. And so I thought, well, I need to raise money because people are coming to me for services, and I don't know what to do. And so I began. I I went and applied for my 501c3, and I got a board. And then I began to fundraise, and I, my first fundraiser, I had five people <laughs> show up. <coughs> no one came because I didn't know what I was doing, and I just sat there and cried. I'm like, God, I'm failing you. But there's beauty in there's beauty in just stepping. People always think that you need to have a path. Yeah. You don't have to have a path. You just have to step in faith. And so I just kept stepping into faith, and then it was growing and growing. And then I got calls from television media to come and do. TV and I was scared shitless. I'd never been on TV before and I survived that. And then um, one day Essence Magazine called and said they heard about me and they wanted me to do this story. And then Robin Roberts, who was at the time, you know, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She's it was um she I think she still is um, an anchor on Good Morning America, saw Essence Magazine and my story and had me and the woman that were in the story come on her show. <coughs> excuse me and then so literally like so I made a video I was doing all these things and then Channel 8 called then Essence saw the 8 piece Essence I'm sorry Essence um reached out to me and then Robin Roberts saw the Essence article had me on the show and then Oprah somehow found me and then you know her people called and and it just began it was a more it was a series of things that just were kind of very magical but I had to show up because if I hadn't
0: showed up, they wouldn't have happened. Right, right. It's all about showing right. up. That's it half is the battle. About- yep, go ahead. No, it, it, I was just basically saying that's half the battle. And I think the, the reason why I was excited when we were, when you were introduced <laughs> to me was after reading your story, I, I'm sure Robin Roberts and all of them, they saw this more in spades, was you could you can sense just your, your, your passion, but your ability to put yourself out there, I think is, is a skill that's underrated. And a lot of people talk about how do you get those opportunities, but you, you showed up, you know, and, and you shared your story and you were bold enough to be vulnerable. And, and then, and I just love that. So, but you said Essence found that Robin Roberts found that, and then they got you on there. Then Oprah somehow found that, and then she featured you.
1: Yeah. So I, Oprah's my mom too, right? I love Oprah. I told all my friends, I'm like, one day I'm going to be on her show. i want to meet Oprah. And I hadn't done anything. So, I mean, I was kind of just speaking out about what I wanted. I wanted to attract that. And so my dream was to meet Oprah. And it, being on the show was like, maybe if that happens, great. But I wanted to meet her. So, um, when the show emailed me, I just, I saw the email and I pressed delete because I thought this is a joke. And then they called me and I was like, they're like, here's the Oprah show. And I was like, yeah, right. Click. And they emailed me again, and then they called again, and I was like, "This isn't my friends are playing playing a prank on me. I didn't believe it was actually true and then some some days passed, and then I was like, you know I kept th- I kept thinking about the calls and the emails, and I said, "Let me go back into my my trash you know my trash bin and see if that email is legitimate." and I looked at it, and it was like, you know the Harpo, I think it was Harpo Studios, whatever it was. <coughs> I have a call, excuse me. no, it's okay." So it was like the email was like not a you know like not a crazy email. It was actually a, a, a you know accurate email address. It looked like it was legit. So I called kind of sheepishly and I was like, "Hi, this is Me Um You guys have been trying to reach me. I think did you really email me and call?" They're like, "Yes, yeah, Oprah Show. Yeah, you. Thank God you called. Um, we saw your story and we want to have you on the show. We've been trying to reach you. The show's next week. Are you available? Am I available? Really?" <laughs> I the on mute and I screamed so loud in my office and then I was like oh my god like and then they wanted all this paperwork and doctors you know like reports and wanted videos and pictures and it was a it was but I was like oh my god like I'm gonna be on Oprah I was so nervous but the th- thing about it is I thought I was gonna be in the audience so I didn't think I was gonna be actually sitting next to Oprah I mean it's Oprah I mean <laughs> right you know, so even looking back now, I'm like, you're so dumb. But so they, they, they're they like, well, oh, we want you to come out um, the day before the show. We want to do a pre-show taping where you'll t- tell your story to the camera and we'll show the story on the show. So I thought they're going to have me there. I'll be in the audience. They'll show my story on the video. And I'll wave at people or whatever, say hi, and get up and just say a few words. And that's it. That's less scary. I can handle that. But, you know. So I get there. They have a car for me at the airport. My mom comes with me and some friends and family members. And then I go for the pre-taping. And they were like, well, we want you to, you know, when you see Oprah, just try to not be starstruck because she's, you know, she's Oprah. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to be, I won't be starstruck. So she was doing another show at the time and she came out of the room, out of the studio. And I just stopped. I just stopped in my tracks. I, she has a halo over her, I swear. <laughs> so, and they, they were like, Mima, let's go finish your taping. So. I'm like, oh, it's Oprah. So um, anyway I did the taping and then we went to the hotel, had dinner and the next morning the car came for me and we go to the studio and they start making me you know, doing my makeup and here. I'm like, what's all this about? you know, like I already did my taping. And um, they had me in this room and they were doing all this airbrushing and so I said, Well, you know, before the show starts, are there any talking points for me in case she calls on me? And they said, No, no talking points. We just want you to, you know, when she calls you just, you know, talk. And I said, I can't do that. This is Oprah. So then the show I was on, it was um, Nancy Brinkard, the founder of Coleman, which is the biggest breast cancer foundation in, in the world. And then Christina Applegate, who was on Married with Children. So and, um, nancy I think Nancy came on and then Christina came on and then they're talking and then I'm like, I think they forgot about me because everyone's in the audience. Their shows happening and I'm just sitting there in the room like, what's going on right now? Is this a joke? And then... So I asked the woman, I was like, "Is this um, did, you, did, did they forget about me or something?" And then she's like, "No, they're gonna come get you at some point." And the show is literally like, you know, 35 minutes, 40 minutes, and I'm like, "They forgot about me." And at some point, um, somebody came back and said, "Okay, Mima, it's time, let's go." And wow. I was like, well, "Where am I gonna sit? I mean, like, people, the whole audience is filled, and Oprah forgot about me, and I'm gonna go back tell my friends how embarrassed I am." Like, and then I walk in. I walk out and then the producer kind of nudges me towards Oprah's towards Oprah. And before they had the chair with Nancy and the chair with Christina, but she put my chair next a chair next to her, an empty chair. And then Oprah like is like patting, you know, like, come here. And so imagine I was shocked. I couldn't talk. I was like saying all these curse words in my head, like, holy like And then, but I didn't have time, and I was mic'd up, and then I sat down, and Oprah said hi, nice to meet you, and then she, they counted down, and then she began to talk to me, and something happened. Um, <laughs> but that was my first experience with Oprah, and it was amazing. Wow. Now,
0: I mean, and, and it, so- it sounds like you did well because you, you've said you've, you've done something with Oprah twice, right?
1: Yeah. So you know, once you're on the show, they start to follow you. I um, eventually I became an own ambassador, an own ambas- own ambassador. And, um, my work continued, you know, my, my foundation grew and my advocacy work um, grew and I wrote a, she asked me to write a, you know, do you have a book? And I said, no, I don't have a book. And she's like, you need to write a book. So I did that. And so my whole, my my mission expanded from just, you know, Tiger Lily to other things. You know, I began to do stuff at the White House and I began to, I've worked on different pieces of, uh, different, you know, bills, um, you know, in Congress. And so all of that grew my platform and my work and so uh they reached out and asked you know kind of like what are you doing now and you may know uh, they have a show on their own network called where are they now yep and so they asked me if I would like to be interviewed for the show and I said hell to the yes I like it right now said, of course. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and so they had me on uh in November
0: wow that's that's amazing and and, and I know we're getting ready to wrap up soon but I a lot of the reason why I wanted you to tell the story the way you did was because it's a journey. Now, now you do, you, know, you have, um, your life coach, you know, you, you talk about living your bliss life. You talk about your pure, pure bliss uh, podcast and you're building a bliss brand. I wanted to give the audience a chance to know who you were first, uh, before you now talk about what, what living a bliss life is and what that brand is about. So take it away as we wrap up. <laughs> yeah, I
1: appreciate you asking me that question. I, a lot of people, asked me how I got to that from, you know, little girl that talked to God in the grotto or little girl not Liberia to being who I am now. And it's just a series of little steps. The little steps including, you know, having faith, um, knowing that there's a bigger purpose for me than just my life. Just just my life my life is my purpose. And I have to live that life brightly and boldly and loudly. And also it's about stepping into your fear and and and, and having um having hope that you're going to make a difference in the world. And I've always been curious about life and curious about people. And, and I've always had a heart for just loving people and giving. So I think when all those things blend together, my intention has been to live a life where I find joy in the moment, where I'm giving back and where I'm being all that I can be in that moment. And because of that, I've been stepping forward. And those steps have been to people who've seen my life grow. And I love life. I love embracing it. And um, I began to experiment with, like, what, is, what does joy mean? What does bliss mean? And um, there's a perception that bliss means running and being exuberantly happy all the time. But for me, bliss is, is being able to just be happy where I am, with my heart beating, with my breath, with my, the simple things, like talking to you and making this great, this great connection. So when you begin to find joy in the moment and you're grateful for that joy, um, something really magical happens. It begins to expand. And as that joy expands, it attracts people who are like-minded to you. And you manifest you can manifest amazing things, as I've experienced in my life. And so my Bliss brand is all about helping people to, to, to be grateful, to an, to make their own magic, and to find joy. And so through that, I've launched a Pure Bliss podcast. Um, I have a, a, a blogazine called Bliss Magazine. Um, my new book that I'm working on currently is called I Am Bliss. And I have, I host regularly, um, I host monthly girls' bliss brunches. And um, I I love my life now. I love my new home. I love my friendships. And I love that God's using me every day to make a difference in people's lives. So thank you for having me on the show.
0: (laughs) No, the pleasure is mine. The pleasure is mine. And where can people find out about the, the Bliss brand and your podcast and all that you're doing?
1: My website is www.mamacarmo.com, and that's M-A-I-M-A-H-K-A-R-M-O.com. I'm on Twitter at M-A-I-M-A-H, Instagram at Mamacarmo, and the podcast can be found at The Pure Bliss Show on iTunes.
0: All right, all right. Well, I'm not going to let you go just yet. This is the last question I ask all my guests. It's it's, uh, my mission statement, use your difference to make a difference. So how do you use your difference to make a difference?
1: I use my, my, I use my natural gifts and talents, and I use the love of my heart and my passion to help people all over the world, whether it's through my breast cancer work, through Tiger Lily, or through my blog, or through my podcast. Um, I believe um, our breath is our gift to the world, and that breath means expressing ourselves. And so um, I'm just a living witness for, for God's good, and um, my goal is to be a witness and to make a difference in every minute that I, I live and breathe.
0: Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, she's using her difference by just being herself and sharing incredible stories of, of strength and, and, and just hope and faith. And um, I want to thank you On, for coming on the show. It's been interesting and, and enlightening hearing your story. And, and it's really, really, uh, I love hearing these type of stories because it, it does show the, the growth that we can have as humans. So thank you yeah. so much.
1: Thank you so much, Tia. I appreciate being on the show. It was wonderful. So next week,
0: use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the "Ass Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com.